when you watch a movie like Amityville Horror House as a kid, it freaks you out, number one, because you you know Amityville. It, it's kind of, uh, my family grew up in Long Island. Amityville is a, is a big place there. They had a really big movie theater, so you went there a lot. And when you have the name of the location that you're familiar with attached to the word horror, it kind of freaks you out immensely. So when you have the Amityville Horror House and you find out that, oh, it's not a haunted house that you go to at a regular carnival. It's just this actual terrifying house where horrible things happened. It freaks out a little bit more. So years ago, I used to go with my friends out to Amityville in New York. I live in Queens. As we were going out there, you're hearing all these things about, oh, you go to the Amityville Horror House and everyone has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother, this happened to my cousins. You know, you kind of, the closer you get, the, the excitement starts to build because when you go from Queens into Long Island, where, where Amityville is, you kind of leave the lights. So you leave like the heavy hustle and bustle of like a borough that's closer to the city and you get a little bit more rural. So as you get out there, this family owned the house. And when you would just approach the property of the Amityville Horror House, they stop you at the at the road and you have to pay money. They would ask you if you have talcum powder um, or flour, because if not, they would sell it to you in a plastic bag. You were allowed to never go near the house. Like you couldn't go up, touch the house, touch the window and stuff like that. You can kind of walk around it, but everyone would kind of park in the field around it. And then people would take the flour or if they brought talcum powder and throw it on the hood of their car. And then tons and tons of people would swear that they heard uh, noises, that they saw dust blowing. And a lot of people also said that they saw handprints uh, show up on the on the talcum powder. Crazy, right? So we go out there and get off the LIE, which is Long Island Expressway. We, we first couldn't find the place. And then we pull over to a gas station. We ask this guy at a gas station. We're like, excuse me, um, we're looking for the Amityville Horror House. And the guy goes, nope, never heard of it. It's not around here. So I'm like, that's, that's really weird. That's really weird. So... I end up calling my cousin. My cousin tells me, oh, no one in the area talks about the house. We go there. So then we're sitting in the field and you, you, you pour it all on your hood of your car and you're sitting there and you're talking. And, you you know, maybe you, maybe you brought some adult beverages to have in the car. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it happened. And uh, all of a sudden, like, you know, you start looking and you're like, is this something going on? And uh, if you're looking at the car right by where the right front uh, light is, all of a sudden you see like a handprint, like not so much the palm, but more all the fingers. And then of the right hand, and then half an imprint on the of of the left hand. And I remember looking at it, and I was like, "And we're gone. We're done. We're good with this. This is not something, you know." And other people, like you, just hear like randomly throughout the field, people just screaming, ah, 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 you know. And you're like, you think that it's just plants or people just doing it to kind of amp up the activity. But I have seen it. I have witnessed it, and it freaked me the fuck out. It doesn't. So I heard, so we're on the bus, my dad, yeah. to Dallas, mm-hmm. for, one time, when I was little, uh, my dad, a, ran a, when I was little, my dad, church. a man came out of the restaurant. Yeah, it's just a story. It's the kind of house they don't build anymore, a relic of a time when the world wasn't in such a hurry. It has stood empty for a long while, and at the price, it is a bargain. For a growing young family, it is almost too good to be true. What do you think? I love it. Coming apart! Oh my!
28 days after the Lutz family moved into their dream house. They were running for their lives. What happened to them is an experience in terror you will never forget. And you will believe in the Amityville Horror. Hello, and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. We're going to take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again, and what our myths and misdeeds, our fears and fables say about us as humans. And this week we're actually doing something special. Every fourth episode or so, we're going to do the... It's just a movie? It's just a movie. Something else again, maybe? Yeah, it's just a song, it's just a whatever, some pop culture phenomenon that we're going to take a little time to look at. But we want to thank everybody that has listened to the show thus far and let you know that we're up on iTunes and you can click subscribe and we will love you so much. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Just a Story Pod and we look forward to hearing from all of you. We'd love to see some reviews and any feedback you have is more than welcome. So today we've had our good friend Joe Malvey tell us a story about his time on Long Island, where as a kid, they would go and visit 112 Ocean Avenue. Yes, tucked in the little hamlet of Amityville, there's a very infamous house. It's the stuff of legend, at least modern legend. I know if you're familiar with the film, a little picture called The Amityville Horror. This was the subject of that film. And so it didn't just start as a film. This wasn't just created as you know, created as a, a screenplay in some person's imagination. Oh no. It started with a news report, actually. A family came forward claiming that all of these terrible events had happened to them and an investigation was launched by the Channel Five News in New York where it was investigated and then the family came under a massive media scrutiny. Then A screenwriter named Jay Anson got in contact with the Lutz family and told them that he'd like to turn their story into a book. So the original book was released in September of 1977. Interestingly, Jay Anson died a year after the book was released. He only produced one more book, another foray into horror, called 666. So the book was released in 77, and then in 1979, the movie The Amityville Horror was released. It was a wonderful, campy, 70s horror film. It was completely panned by the critics, but made so much money. It was a huge commercial success. It made $86 million, and it was the second highest grossing film that year, behind only Kramer vs. Kramer. What titles did it beat out, Jacob? Beat such classics as Rocky II, Apocalypse Now, Star Trek, Alien, Ten, The Jerk, Moonraker, and The, the Muppet, Muppet Movie. Frightening. So, The Annual Horror was a gigantic success, and there are some iconic moments from the film that have wormed their way into the cultural consciousness. Right, there are some scenes that are just, even if you haven't seen the movie, they have become almost horror movie tropes. Such as, in the, this haunted house, flies appearing out of nowhere, hundreds of them swarming people. There's a hidden secret red room that no one knows what it's for. Found in the basement, of course, because where else could the hidden room be that would give it half that gravitas? Of course, it's not on the 
building's plans. No one knows exactly what it's for. The little boy Danny has his hand crushed. Doorknobs are locking. The dad in the movie, George Lutz, begins waking up at 3.15 at night. And he's starting to become more aggressive. So he's to become obsessed with things like the house and the boathouse. Going to check the boathouse at 3.15 is a big thing for George. And in the movie, they find out the house is built on Shinnecock Native American burial grounds, and that a known satanic worshiper named John Ketchum once lived on the land, you know, enslaved or killed or tortured all of these poor Native Americans that lived there. Of course he did. You know, and this movie was... Like I said, it's, it's a wonderfully campy, cheesy 70s movie. Highly recommended. Uh, right. It stars uh, James Berlin. Yes, and Margot Kidder. Who I love. Playing Kathleen Lutz aside, James Brolin and that beard, that sweet, luxurious beard. Oh, he has that sexy 70s look. It's kind of back in style. Yeah, yeah, he's kind of like hipster looking. It kind of works again. And again, another classic 70s thing on the poster. It's the house and big letters, scary font. It says, for God's sake, get out! Yeah, uh, the 70s horror movie tags were amazing. Were amazing. And the movie was remade in 2005. With one Ryan Reynolds. Yes. As George Lutz. Did he have a beard? I think so. Beard. I think so. We actually saw that in theaters. Yeah, we did. Back in the day. And it will be remade. They're going to reboot it as they reboot everything because there are no original ideas in Hollywood. And it's supposed to come out in 2016. Mark your calendars. Get so, your popcorn. Yes, yeah, so this is a classic movie. Everyone kind of knows about this movie. If they haven't seen it, they know the title, The Amityville Horror. We've talked about there's a book written about this, then became a movie. Huge success. Is this a real story? Did well, I think that part of the commercial success of the film and the book were due to one little phrase printed right on the cover of that paperback. Is it? Based on a true story. It was indeed based on a true story. And this is the true story of the Lutz family. The Lutzes were looking for property. And it even, the book begins by telling us that they were looking for something in the $30,000 to $50,000 price range. But the real estate agent took them to see this beautiful, expansive, three-story home in Amityville. With a sign out front that read, High Hopes. What a great, lovely name. And that's exactly right. And so, for the mere price of $80,000, they got this palatial home with a boathouse and a swimming pool, a rumpus room, and furniture, and all that you can imagine. Right, all the furniture that was left by the previous owners. Correct, yes, obviously. And so this was a, this is a kind of new family. It was a... It was a blended family. The mom. Kathleen. Her, her kids. Danny, Chris, and Missy. And their new stepdad. George. Interestingly, you will notice in all the literature and documentation of this case that the children and the stepfather had the same last name. That's because he would not marry Kathy unless he was allowed to formally adopt the children and change all of their last name to his. This might have been kind of normal if they'd been under three or so, but Danny was nine when this happened. That always struck me as a little odd, just as a note before we get into more of the story. Yeah, we'll talk a little more about how odd George is as a character. 
he's a shifty fellow. So but he, they, he has a luxurious beard, though. So Very true. So when they were moving into this house, you know, as they were looking at the house and the parents were showing the kids their new kind of American dream home, Mom pulled the kids aside because she had something to tell them about the house. As any parent would do. Actually, I don't know if any parent would do this. I kind of think it's screwy that she did. She told them that there had been a murder in the house. And she wasn't making it up. Prior to the Lutz's residency at 112 Ocean Avenue, the home belonged to the DeFeo family. On November 13th, 1974, the eldest son, Ronnie Jr., or Butch, as he was known to his friends, aged 23 years old, took a 35 caliber rifle, killed his two brothers, his two sisters, and his mother and father as they slept. Interestingly, no one heard gunshots. A silencer was not used. There was no sign of struggle in the victims. They were all face down, sleeping on their stomachs. Toxicology reports were done, and there wasn't a trace of any drugs found in anyone's system. So how'd they find out that this family was murdered? Ronnie woke up and went to work the next day, as one does, after committing matricide, patricide, and whatever you call murdering your brothers and sisters. But then he burst into the local bar screaming that his family had been murdered. And police investigated, and he was telling the truth. Later, he went on to say that the voices from the house made him do it. Some of the circumstances surrounding this mystery, this murder, are very suspect, such as the family not waking up, the idea that it would have been hard for one person to get around to all the rooms and shoot them in succession without any of the others waking up, that drugs. Yeah, I find it odd that they're all laying down, face down, all in their beds. The parents were each shot twice, and the kids were shot once. How can that many gunshots go off without someone in the house hearing, much less in the neighborhood? Right, it's hard to believe that victim number six wasn't up running away by the time the killer got to him or her. But all of the reports and all the investigation do not find that the bodies were moved? Correct, and there were no defensive wounds or signs of struggle. So, he had a lawyer. William Weber. He seems like a really upstanding guy. Does he? Definitely. I mean, he tried to get him off on insanity, please. Which, honestly, I don't see how that could be... I don't see how you could argue for his sanity. Right. Well, I mean, you know, we didn't mention that he was a known heroin abuser. And LSD. He was into LSD as well. He was into lots of different drugs. True. But this guy, I mean, he tried that. It, it failed. Right. He was found guilty. And sentenced to numerous... Six life sentences. Weber didn't stop there, though. He continued to work on Ronnie's behalf, and he'll be a major player as we continue the story of the Lutz family. So, just over a year after the crimes were committed, the Lutz family purchased the home and moved in on December 18th. Kathy informed the children that there had been a murder there and asked them if they thought it would bother them. Being 10 and younger, I don't really think that they may have Googled murder yet and didn't know kind of what they were getting themselves into. And besides, there was a swimming pool, so who was going to argue with that? Right, they saw this beautiful house, and they probably couldn't even comprehend what that would mean. But the family did call on a priest to come and bless the house as they were moving in. Right, and one uh, discrepancy I want to point out between the fictionalized account in Jay Anson's book and the movie and the story as the Lutzes tell it is the way that the relationship between George and the priest is made to seem... George was a non-practicing Methodist, is what he claimed, and he had no prior relationship with the priest who came and blessed the home. Um, I think he was a friend of Kathy's and her family's. Because she was a Catholic. 
Right, but she was divorced and remarried, so basically, like, what, excommunication for that? I don't know. Back in the day, especially. In the telling of the account, the priest was supposedly slapped, told to get out, and then developed flu-like symptoms. Right, and there's some controversy and debate about his symptoms, and he hasn't really wanted to come forward and talk much. He's also, at this point, he's deceased, so we can't really call him up. I tried. He never really came out and spoke publicly about his experience. And then in the house, they described an ooze coming out of the walls. George said it was like a gelatin-like substance that covered the floor. In the books, they spend like days, like as a family, all chipping in and working together and clearing the ooze from the house. But one thing that Weber suggested in interviews was that perhaps it was some like forensics powder that had some weird reaction over time or not been cleaned properly. One thing I thought was interesting is that what you read in Anson's book. About the storms? Yes. Okay, so repeatedly, big theme in the book is windows being opened and not being closed. Idea that all of them together cannot get the windows closed, etc. And at one point, they're in the home and a giant hurricane force storm with rain, etc. comes. According to the Lutzes, all the windows blow out and they are subject to this torrential downpour with the windows open. There's this big ordeal about the windows being open during a storm. And being from a place where it floods pretty often, I know where there's flooding, there's mold. So my other question is, like, is the ooze mold? I mean, I can help but think that. Whenever you have a house that was exposed to weather like that, is it mold? Even though the Lutzes really are very steadfast on this story, one of the things they do say was exaggerated was the ooze. Some of the other really extravagant claims made by the Lutz family was kind of surrounded Kathy. According to George and her, one night she aged incredibly rapidly and turned into a hideous old crone. Thanks, babe. Thanks. I'm sure she said. It took hours for her face to go back. Also, a long chapter in the book about her having scratches all over her body that appear and then go away in a matter of hours that burn when you touch them. In the book, her mom sees this, but of course there are no photos of any of this because why would you take photos of this, I guess? Right, there's really no documentation of really any of this happening. No. There's no photos, no samples, and only the testimony of the family. So they also claim that there were some levitation incidents, as will happen when you're settling into a new home. Apparently, Kathy levitated off the bed multiple times, uh, and George had to grab her to keep her from floating away. On the night that they left the home, the boys' beds upstairs on the third floor were banging against the ceiling and banging against one another, and the boys maintain to this day that this happened to them. So how long did they stay in this house with all of these paranormal and demonic things happening? 28 days. That's it? That's all. And then what they do? They left the home. They left all of their food, all of their belongings, the deed to the home, important paperwork, birth certificates, family heirlooms, photos, etc., etc., would not return to the house, jumped on a flight and moved to California, never re-entered the home, and allowed the bank to foreclose on the house. One of the most common criticisms or 
uh, theories on whether or not this actually happened surrounds George's finances. A lot of people believe that he was just under a mortgage he couldn't afford. In the book, it makes mention of him and his business being investigated by the IRS. Money keeps going missing in the house. That's one of the things that's cited as paranormal activity that I'm like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I bet it did. But, I mean, the counter-argument to that is, can you really get that behind on your mortgage payments in 28 days? No. I don't think that you can get that behind. But I think that if you have a peculiar mindset, you can see this as an opportunity. And I feel like maybe George did. I feel like he was in this situation. Maybe there was some activity. Maybe some things were happening. And he realized that he had a good story. I don't know if that's true or not, but I think that he was a very calculating man, and I can't imagine that he didn't see the benefit in having a horror story. Now, were they really afraid when they left? It seems they'd have to be. I, I, gen- like, I can't look at this and say that it was completely cold or insincere. Because to leave everything behind that way, I do wonder, did this maybe start as a fabrication and they really just bought into it? I think that's possible. So they may have left in the middle of the night because weird stuff was happening and decided not to go back to the house and then realized the power that that gave the story. If they would never re-enter the home, what a convincing (laughs) measure. And it really is the only piece of evidence, the only bit that can be really corroborated and verified, that they never went back to the home. I think that that makes the story. If you were a little freaked out and you've watched that happen and you see how the media responds to this element of the story, of course you don't go back. Well, and speaking of the media, this really got into the public eye whenever Channel 5 News began their investigation. So Laura DiDio worked for Channel 5 News and was investigating parapsychology, you know, those kind of phenomenon going on, and came across the Lutz's case. And so with that, she contacted our favorite historical paranormal investigators. Ed and Lorraine Warren. Sam, now, who are Ed and Lorraine Warren? Ed and Lorraine Warren are first and foremost fabulous. They are a couple who investigate the paranormal. Ed was one of the only demonologists that is recognized by the Catholic Church who's not an ordained minister. And Lorraine is a super psychic medium who wears these awesome bows in her hair and the primest little dresses you've ever seen. She's now like 86 years old and she is still just fierce and I love her so much. And so you may have seen them before. Lorraine Warren still makes appearances and different kind of ghost shows and she was on Paranormal States. That's where we found her. Yes, back in the day. They were fictionalized in the recent uh, movie The Conjuring. They were actually portrayed as characters under their own names in that movie and they were involved with that case. But I think that that's maybe where their most recognizable appearance has been. Um, And they were also involved in the Annabelle case as well. They were involved in the Annabelle case. They were involved in Annabelle, Conjuring. They were haunting in Connecticut. They've documented paranormal activity. Werewolves. Werewolves, even. But if you go looking in the paranormal, you will find Ed and Lorraine Warren's name stamped on everything that moves. They are the godfather and godmother of parapsychology in the United States. And so bringing them in was a huge 
deal. Yeah, I don't know if they had the name recognition at that point. I think that this is actually one of the things that made them Ed and Lorraine Warren, is my feeling from kind of reading the accounts and having just read The Demonologist, which is a fabulous book about them. I believe that this was one of their very defining cases. So they brought the Warrens in. So what did their investigation find? Did they find demons crawling through their secret red room or find ghosts levitating beds? Well, not so much. There wasn't a lot of visible paranormal activity during the five-hour seance investigation. Lorraine and two other psychics that were present definitely picked up on some negative vibrations. Uh, Lorraine still says that it's the closest to hell she's ever been. I mean, she's been in some pretty hellish situations. But there was nothing for the crewmen to really document. There is an account of one cameraman who had been in war zones and, like, been filming in Vietnam, refusing to go upstairs in the house and, like, saying that he felt like he was going to have a heart attack and he didn't have a heart condition. But it was more like just feelings that were picked up on. Of course, there is the famous photograph. Yes, the Amityville Ghost Boy photograph. That's one that one of the Warren's timed cameras picked up on. There's someone peering around a corner. People say it is a boy. The more I look at it, the more I think it's like someone rounding the corner of the staircase. It looks like a man in his mid to late 40s wearing glasses with a plaid shirt. If you study the photograph for a little while. It appears to me that the shirt extends to what would be like a child's knees if it were actually a boy. And it makes me think that it's a man and we're seeing not his full figure. But like one of the crew members. Right. And not someone, I don't think it's fake. You know, like I don't think that they intentionally doctored this photo or anything like that, but I think it may be misinterpreted evidence. And so this is where the media frenzy really begins, and George Lutz definitely takes notice of this. I don't know that his original intention was to put forward a story. According to some accounts, they did this out of the goodness of their hearts. Do you want to know what they did after they moved out of 112 Ocean Avenue? What did they do? They contacted William Weber. Does that name sound familiar? I think that is Fayer's attorney. Correct. That's uh, Faye's defense attorney. In theory, they wanted to contact him to t- corroborate what DeFeo was saying, that there was something in the house that made people act weird and feel weird and do weird things and possible that they were trying to help out with his defense. But the Lutzes and Weber kind of struck up a little friendship. They did. Um, he began acting as their mouthpiece at press conferences and told them that he was working on a book with DeFeo, ask if they wanted in. So, Weber already had a very interesting kind of true crime story. Yes, and there was that element of, like, what were the voices in the house? Little kernel of paranormal in the true crime book. So what did the Lutzes bring to this? They brought a whole ear of paranormal corn to go with that kernel. That sounds like the best popcorn. It did, in fact, turn into popcorn years later, as the movie was released. So they went to Weber's house, and they were talking to him, I think originally about DeFeo's defense, etc. And they started talking about some of the weird things that had happened in the house. And they started drinking wine, and they started laughing and talking and having fun. And Weber claims that that whole episode turned into a creative writing session, where they were like, ooh, this happened, but we could say it was this. Or, hey, did you notice this weird thing? Or... 
you know, where he was kind of feeding them ideas, and they were like, oh, yeah, that's kind of like what happened. Right, so Weber claims that they made, pretty much made the entire story up during this evening of wine drinking and debauchery. Well, hell hath no fury like a lawyer scorned. He was eventually scorned. They went back on their deal to write a book with Weber in lieu of writing a book with Jay Anson. Which became the enemy of the heart. For God's sake, get out, based on God's a true story. Sake, get out. So, Weber's feelings were very hurt as he watched the Lutzes bring the Amityville story to the masses, and he actually tried to sue them later for like $2 million. No, they it worked out very well for him, but he didn't give up on the idea that there was something amiss in Amityville. He hired Hans Holzer, who is another paranormal rock star. I suggest you look into his career. He's a parapsychologist, and there was also a medium who came through the house. And this was in 1977, so long after the Lutzes had gone. So I do find it interesting that Weber later tries to discredit the whole story. But after the book is published, after he has missed out on a lot of money, he's still trying to create this supernatural story around the house. I think that Weber believed that there was some supernatural stuff going on. I think that he wanted people to believe that the Lutzes were exaggerating their experiences and that his client had lived through the real horror or that there was something there that was making him act insane. It benefited him for there to be paranormal activity. So he brought in Hans Holzer, and what did Hans Holzer and his crew find? Well, there was a medium who walked the house, and she says that there was an Indian chief, the spirit of a disgruntled Indian chief of the Shinnecock tribe, who could possess people and make them do anything he wanted. Spooky. It is indeed so spooky. But the Shinnecock tribe was having none of that. They said that there was no burial ground there and that they were full of it. So after all this happened, I mean, as we know, this house still stands. It still exists. And Amityville has gone to great lengths to keep it from becoming a tourist attraction. They've wanted to keep the area residential. They don't really appreciate the hordes of people that were gathering on the lawns and sleeping on the lawns without permission. So it's been owned by private families. There have been five owners since the Lutz has left, and none of them have reported any paranormal activity. But if you are to buy into the idea that there was something evil in the house, there was an exorcism done on the house. So maybe it worked? Sure. One of the things I love is that the future owners actually did a remodel of the house. Yeah. Because they have that very classic half-crescent windows on the house that look like kind of like eerie eyes peering out at you. Right, and that was something that the posters for the movie definitely capitalized on. They broadened the windows, they brought them down a little bit, so now it has a unibrow instead of eerie eyes. So now it looks like a Muppet instead of a creepy demon war chief ready to possess you. Yeah. Which is, if you pick up your copy of Southern Living or any other interior design magazine, it will tell you that Muppets are much more in vogue than creepy Indian chiefs ready to possess and kill you. Good to know. With all of this, there's still a lot of inconsistencies with the story, some really odd things. Despite those inconsistencies... You have to concede that there is some major weirdness that has been documented by outside sources. For 
example, the Massapequan tribe used to use this area as a quarantine for the sick, dying, and mad. And they thought that the place was inhabited by demons. So maybe there was an evil demon Indian. Not a chief, though. I just really don't think the chief was sent there. And then, I mean, there are inconsistencies with DeFeo's story. I mean, we talked about just how odd it was that no one heard it, all the bodies laying down, there being no sedatives. How could he do this? Could he do this by himself? I find it really hard to believe that without some sort of help or intervention, he was able to make it all the way through the home, picking these kids and his parents off one by one, and went completely undetected. And so when I was researching this, I saw that there was a private investigator who was interested in this case, and they hired divers and found a gun in the water near the house. And now this is, of course, more than 30 years later. It's completely corroded. It's hard to say who the gun belonged to. But I think that it's really interesting because there was a missing handgun in all reports that is noted, and this gun is the same make and model as the gun that DeFeo was missing. And it makes you wonder why the gun ended up in the water. One thing we talked about was, was it an accomplice that got rid of their gun and had more sense than DeFeo? Well, no, because it's a different make than the gun that actually shot the family. Apparently they were all killed with the same weapon. And DeFeo led them to the murder weapon. That doesn't seem to hold water. Another thought I had, and this is just kind of an out there crazy Samantha theory, was like maybe this isn't the first time that the crazy voices told him to kill his family. And maybe he had that gun in his hand the first time and he went and threw it in the water. It's possible. George Lutz is another interesting part of this case. This guy was an ex-Marine who was just acted very odd. You know, the adoption, you know, the stories of how he's disciplined his children or his adopted children. Um, and then that he was very into kind of the occult. I don't find it hard to believe that a man who had been a Marine during the 60s would have had some interest in parapsychology because there was kind of an air of that. I'm thinking of like men who stare at goats. And then there's also the New Age movement at that time. It seems to fit for me. His son, Danny, actually claimed that he was into way more than just like mind control and ESP and telekinesis. He says there were books on like satanic sacrifice and things like that in his home which seems a little incriminating and odd. Danny also talks at length about George's involvement with the occult and the paranormal. And I, having recently read Jay Anson's book, thought it was very interesting that he makes multiple mentions of practicing transcendental meditation, but also very carefully states multiple times that that never happened in the house. They never meditated in the house. Kathy would be like, George, we should meditate. And he's like, I just don't have time, Kathy. The priest would ask, George, are you still practicing transcendental meditation? And George would be like, no, I haven't had time. And he'd be like, good. I was worried it could have opened you up to something. So, like, multiple times throughout the book, they're like, George practiced transcendental meditation, but never at 112 Ocean Avenue. So I think that's really interesting because it seems like like, when I walk in and my five-year-old is like, got his hand in the cookie jar and I don't even say anything and he turns around and goes, Nothing! Nothing, Mama! You know, like, he's, like, responding to an accusation that hasn't even been made. I kind of think this is an example of Nothing, Mama, in the Amityville case. 
And another one of those that I think is interesting is there's a big long story about George going to the library to check out a book on demons to get a handle on all this. He's going to solve the problem himself. And so he gets the book and then he calls the priest and he's like, hey, I figured out which demons are causing all the trouble and starts like reading their names out loud. And the priest is like, don't say it, don't do it. And he's like, oh, I didn't know. And that's the end of that. I think that that may be another accounting for, oh, well, if anybody goes to the library, they're going to see that I checked out books and books and books on the occult, and we need an explanation for that. Kind of we talked about earlier, it's like, did they buy into the story? I mean, they took lie detector tests and passed them. Which all that tells us is either that they could clench their sphincters with great skill, or they believed it. It doesn't tell us whether or not what they say happened objectively to an outside viewer would have appeared to happen. No, I agree. It's, you know, how did they read on this and how did this become entrenched in their minds? For example, Danny was 10 years old at the time that all this happened. He was the oldest child. And he now firmly and completely believes that everything happened. Danny's a really interesting character. So there's an entire documentary about him called My Amityville Heart. And it is extremely interesting. And very, very well made. It tells the story of the Amityville Horror and what happened, but it's mostly Danny's testimony. Regarding his relationship with George, his sincere and complete belief in the phenomena that were reported to have occurred. But to me, the most horrifying thing about it is the complete sincerity, and it's the very, 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 very obvious psychological trauma that this kid has been through as a result of either this experience or his family's response to this experience. And as we discussed in previous podcasts, it's not that difficult to implant these really kind of absurd ideas and memories into someone's head, especially with the amount of suggestion and corroboration that he had. There are movies, there are books, his priests are telling him it happened, his parents are telling him it happened. Everyone he trusts, everyone that's in an authority position in his life is saying, you went through this. Is this a case of psychological problems or is it a case of kind of a recovered memory syndrome? Or is it actual survivor trauma from a paranormal experience that felt life-threatening? No one can say. I don't think Danny can say. I feel like the evidence is there against the true paranormal activity happening. I don't know if that's true. I don't think it happened to the degree they said it did. I don't think George and Kathy had as many experiences as the kids probably did. But in whatever worldview you're adopting, something happened that scared that family. What we're always trying to do is say, why are we telling this story? Why has this stuck around the collective consciousness for so long? Well, I think that part of it is the idea that this is the antithesis of the American dream. It's the family getting everything they ever wanted and having it ripped away by the scary monsters that go bump in the night. And I think that that's sort of horrifying to us, just because we strive to have you know, the white picket fence and the 2.5 children and the happily ever after in the big house. You know, it's just this this mythos we have that if you have those things you will be happy that is a good point because it has the veil of the american dream but when you look into details of it 
you know, it's not. You know, George Lutz was, you know, in some cases, a very strict, domineering, paternal figure. He was not the children's you know, biological father. And as the children tell, you know, they did not like him. Um, it was not a happy home. They did end up buying a very nice house, but this house was a place where the entire family was murdered by their son. You know, George and Kathy did eventually end up divorcing in 1980. So that kind of goes to the idea that this was not a happy home. There are mentions of them, like, not buying the kids many Christmas presents that year and not feeling like they'd done enough and they didn't... They would get mad, and Kathy multiple times in the books is like, I'll give you another slap. Come down here, and I'll do it again. They reported that they beat the children with wooden spoons, and they said the house made them do it, but it's really hard to believe that that was a new practice that only lasted 28 days when you hear Danny talk about it. There have been so many books written on this topic, and so many documentaries and movies and TV episodes with people trying to discredit the story. Is it a hoax? The Amityville hoax. Hoax, hoax, hoax. You can't look at the story without having that pop up. And I think that there's just this fear in people of someone getting away with something. Someone getting something over on people. It requires a great deal of faith to take the story at face value. There is a great amount of suspension of disbelief. You're asking a lot of your audience. Come on board and I will tell you of the Red Room in the basement and the ooze and jody the talking demon pig oh my god we didn't mention jody the talking demon pig we are, would have been remiss to tell you about the end of the horror and not tell you about jody the talking demon pig so apparently missy the five-year-old daughter had an imaginary friend named jody who turned out to be a pig that claimed to be an angel that could talk that they saw through the window in the second story once and found cloven hoof prints in the snow also once even though there was no snow recorded on the day of the event. Right. But if a pig can talk and be an angel and have glowing red eyes, why can't it make tracks in non-existent snow? I hate when demon pigs come and bury the family. I do. It's just not nice. You know what? Demon pig bacon. Another money-making idea from Just a Story Podcast. Take it to the bank, fellas. We need to start patenting this. Yeah, we do. So, we're looking for a new house... Mm-hmm. And we find a really nice place out here in Texas. Deep in the heart of Texas. And we find out that there might be, you know, it might be haunted or demon-possessed. If we move in, will demons possess us and evil flying angel pigs come and try to attack us? I don't think that it's the demon pigs you need to worry about. But it's important to remember that even in a place that looks as perfect as 112 Ocean Avenue, terrible things can happen. Things like your 23-year-old son coming home and shooting your entire family while you're sleeping. But it's just a story. Yeah. It's just a story.